Good morning, Grace Life. Every time I say that, I think of that Robin Williams movie, Good Morning Vietnam. Good morning, Grace Life. I'm Steve Ekman. I'm one of the elders. Uh, for some of you, welcome to Grace Life. For others of you, it's welcome back to Grace Life. And for some of you, I know you've had a trying week. Um, for all of us, it's kind of been an unusual time. And we... Um, something we we have just haven't experienced when it's been that way for months so we at grace life will say to you to all who mourn and need comfort to all who are weary and need rest to all who feel worthless and wonder if god cares to all who fail and need strength to all who sin and need a savior to all in hunger who hunger and thirst after righteousness and to whoever else will come. Grace Life Church opens wide its doors and welcomes you in the name of Jesus Christ. Prepare us for worship this morning. I want to read from Psalm 46. And we are, I'm reading from the ESV version. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father God, as we gather together this morning in your name, with like-minded Christians, with like-minded people, with other churches universally, Lord, that want to worship and serve the Creator God, we are thankful that we have this opportunity to gather together to worship you, to worship your name, for you're the one that is deserving of great praise and great worship, and so we want to do that this morning, Lord. We thank you again. We thank you for this church. We thank you for all those who have come out this morning um, for that purpose of worshiping you. Now, as we gather together, we pray that you would bless our time. Amen. Kyle, worship team. Let's all stand together and worship this morning. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. His sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship you. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. 
built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone 
you this morning, that you are our cornerstone, you are our foundation, you are what we can rely on in times of struggle and need, Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who has brokenness and pain, that they can just surrender it all to you, God. And Lord, I pray for them that they can be encouraged, that there is hope, and there is, there is love, and there is life in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Amazing love, amazing The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. My chains are gone. Set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbears to shine, but God who called me will be forever mine. My chains are gone.
The head that once was crowned with thorns Is crowned with glory now The Savior knelt to wash our feet Now at His feet we The one who wore our sin and shame Now robed in majesty The radiance of perfect love Now shines for the Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. The fear that held us now gives way to him who gives our peace. His final breath upon the cross is now alive in me. Your name.
to Christ our King. The tomb where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed a grave. Our God has robbed a grave. Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Your name, your name is victory. praise you today that because you defeated the grave, we too have victory over death, Lord. Lord, I just want to I want to pray for, for Tommy's message today, God, that you just speak through him. You give him the words to say and let us receive the word with open hearts and open minds, God, and let us leave here fed and changed. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Genesis. We'll, we'll be talking about broken mirrors beginning in chapter 1. We pick up in the creation story at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now skip down again to verse, to, I'm sorry, to chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife 
Eve. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what? Have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Oh, wait a minute. Here we go. Got it. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Well, good morning. I'm Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Life Church. And whether you are joining us via uh, live feed on YouTube or Facebook or just here in person, on behalf of, of Christ and the members and the leaders of this church, welcome. I'm thankful that the Lord brought you in his providence today. And I just want to pause and pray and ask God to bless our time together and to challenge us, that's, that's the two things I've prayed would happen this morning, that we would all welcome being challenged by God, and also we would leave here encouraged and filled with a greater hope that's rooted and grounded in the gospel than when we came. So would you pray with me, and then we'll dig down into the verses that you just heard read by Steve. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have the freedom, the privilege, and the responsibility to open up your word this morning and to search it and to be searched by it. It's the only book, Lord, that we don't just read it, it reads us. We don't just analyze and judge it, it analyzes and judges us. And we read in your word in Isaiah 55 that it's like rain. It comes down from heaven and it causes growth. Just like we've seen this week, all the rain, the refreshing replenishing rain that you gave us, Lord, we're grateful for that. We see green things sprouting up, some that are welcome and some that are unwelcome, but new growth has been fostered and cultivated, and it's a miracle, and every time we see it, maybe you're wanting to remind us of the miracle of the power of your word, God, and Isaiah says that this rain comes down and changes the thorns and briars into cypress and myrtle trees and produces something new, and I pray that would happen today, Lord, from just the power of your word, and give me just guidance and direction and anointing from your Holy Spirit so that new growth takes place, and sometimes old things have to be moved out of the way in order to make room for the new, and so I pray that you would do whatever it takes for that to happen, Lord, and anything I say that's not truthful, that's not biblical, 
I pray that you'd protect your people from it, Lord. May we get it all from your word, and may we welcome it. Give us faith. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that want to believe and repent of whatever things we need to repent of, Lord, to be right with you and to show the world what you are truly like, to be good image bearers. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can just bookmark Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 4. I know it's kind of odd to, to be reading out of all those places, but hopefully that makes sense. You know, Grace Life Church is a church that is built on a message that we call the gospel. And that word gospel is a Greek word. It just means good news. The gospel is a declaration. It's not something for you to do. It's something that has been done for you on behalf of you by somebody else who did it out of love for you, did what you could not do and what you would not do. So in that sense, it's the best news in the world that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. He came to rescue and restore a broken world filled with broken, sinful people. This church is built on that message. That's foundational for everything we do. It shapes us. It colors us. It influences everything. The gatherings, the events, the messages, the prayers, the fellowships, everything we do is shaped and driven and motivated, really, by the gospel. Even our charge at the very end, when we leave here, we say we've been motivated by God's love. And so we've been sent out into the world, having been refueled and recharged with that message. Now, Paul, whenever he's talking about the gospel in one of his epistles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he has this phrase, and he says, I delivered to you, first of all, what I received from God, and he gives the gospel that Jesus came, he died, he rose from the grave according to the scriptures. And he says that message is of first importance. It's of first importance. That means it's the most important thing that we as Christians can rehearse, can celebrate, and could you know, be shaped and changed by. That, that message, the gospel, it's of first importance because it saves us and it changes us. And not only us, but anybody else. It saves others, it changes others. It's of first importance. And I want to say this too, I want to add this to what Paul said. Just because the gospel is this message of first importance does not mean that we cannot talk about other important things. In fact, that very letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, he started with the gospel and he ended with the gospel. And in between in those 15 chapters, he is addressing all kinds of other issues in that church that the gospel had to attack and correct he talks about divisions and factions. He talks about idolatry, cultural idolatry, religious idolatry, pastoral idolatry. People were elevating Paul and, and Peter and Apollos, and Paul's attacking that. He's attacking sexual immorality in the church. He's attacking the members, not attacking the members. He's attacking this wrong way of thinking and living, living a life that's out of step with the gospel. That's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians, just like he did with Peter in public. He confronted him because he was blameworthy. His life wasn't in step with the gospel, and neither are the Corinthians where Paul planted his church. So he attacks sexual immorality. They're taking each other to court before an unbelieving city and leaving a terrible testimony. Paul addresses that. They are having doubts and suspicions and rethinking key doctrines like the resurrection. They're confused about spiritual gifts. So just because... The gospel is of first importance doesn't mean we don't talk about other things. It, it, it shapes the way we talk about them because the only power, the only thing that boasts of any power to change us is the message of the cross. So I want to do that today. I want to talk about 
really address what we're seeing all around us. All you have to do is just open your eyes and look anywhere right now in America and really in the world because America is not alone. And you will see it. You can hear it. Maybe you even feel it. It's, it's unrest, hurt, fear, confusion, anger, exhaustion, distrust, the political back and forth. Last week, Kyle preached an amazing message on Romans chapter 8, groaning, groaning. Paul says the whole creation groans together. We are groaning under this burdened life that we are living and that we see, that the world is under poor management, right? Because it's under the management of sinners. And we see it with the death of George Floyd, the protests that followed, some peaceful, some not peaceful, some riots, the political back and forth, it's, it's groaning. And I want to talk about that. And as a Christian, my primary, my primary interest is to answer this question. What's going on? How did we get here? What happened? And what's the way out? That, you know, everybody in this room right now, everybody in the world, we don't know it, but we all have worldviews. That's the lens through which we view the world. Ways that we, we have been deeply and profoundly shaped. Our beliefs have taken form. We don't even realize them, but we have them. And, and a worldview answers three questions. What's the world supposed to be like? What happened? <laughs> and how can it be fixed? And I think pretty much any thinking person today would say, what's the world supposed to be like? Not this. Not like this. Now, why is it like this? That's where the debate starts. And how can it be fixed? That's where the real debate gets, you know, takes off to new levels. But I think most people would agree the world is not supposed to be like this. Even some unbelievers agree. Police brutality, injustice, racism. What went wrong? And how can it be fixed? So what I want to do is dig for answers that you're probably not going to find on a political back and forth or talking head on a TV or maybe a, a news radio. Maybe you'll hear echoes and glimpses of it there, but our responsibility as Christians is to really dig deep into in God's Word and find out what's going on. And to do that, we have to go back to the beginning because this didn't start with a broken cop. It started with a broken image bearer in the very beginning of creation where, where Steve uh, read in Genesis. And just as a personal note, I just want to share this. I read the other day a pastor that said... Uh, in his 20 years of preaching, not once had he ever been asked to not preach about abortion, homosexuality, sexual immorality of any kind. He listed a whole gossip, all, all kinds of stuff. He says, but I have been asked not to even mention the word racism and address it. And you know what I have to say? That doesn't shock me because I don't want to be naive, the world that we live in. But I, I was grateful for church that not only has this church never told me to not address something, you guys have like invited me to address things. Like, hey, pastor, does God have anything to say about this? Do you have anything to say about this? And the answer is yes. Yes. And the reason that I wait sometimes to address things is because I don't want to react. Man, is there a lot of that going on today? People reacting instead of reasonably, carefully, biblically, and lovingly responding. I think Christians ought to be the deepest thinkers, the most careful listeners, the best analysts, and the most thoughtful responders in the world. The most thoughtful responders in the world. And I, and I want to do that. God's Word invites us to do that. So we'll jump in at Genesis 1, 2, and 4. And I'm not going to reread all of that. 
that Steve read, but you know, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, the second commandment says, Thou shalt not make for thyself any graven image, neither in the heavens above, the sky above, or the, the sea beneath. What that's saying is, don't try and draw a picture of what God the Father is like. <laughs> don't carve a statue, don't make an icon, nothing like that. It, it, it forbids that. No image making, period. And the word in Greek, excuse me, the word in Hebrew is actually statue. That's what it means. You shall have no graven images or no likeness of God. Do you know why? Do you know why God told Moses, hey, don't try and figure out what I look like or what I'm like. You know why? Because God already made an image of himself. Did you know that? God made an image. He made something in his likeness. And the Bible tells us that it was us. So if you want to know what God is like, you're supposed to, on paper, biblical paper, you're supposed to be able to go and find a human being and say, now, that's a likeness of God. That's what he's like. God made us in his image. We bear his likeness. All the other things that were made, animals, plants, trees, it says, and, and, they, and, and, and they produced more after them according to their likeness. It never says that when God created us. He stops and he says, let us make man according to our image. And it says, in the, in, in the male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. So both men and women bear some resemblance to who God is and what he's like. And then he gives us charge over all creation. He makes us stewards. And he implies that we need one another's help to show the world what God is like. We can't do it alone. We need help. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for a woman to be alone. We need help in keeping creation. So that's, that's the foundation that I wanted to build on is that when God made us in his image, part of our privilege and part of our responsibility was to show the world what God is like by taking care of creation. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I think about it all the time. need to talk about it more. What is it like to bear God's image on the earth? Well, what is God like? Well, God creates things, doesn't he? God makes things. That's what he did. In the very beginning of the Bible, that's the image of God we see first. In the beginning, God what? Created. He made stuff out of nothing. Now, we can't do that, <laughs> but we have the stuff to do what the Bible says, exercise dominion, subdue the earth, multiply, be fruitful, fill it. And that's what mankind has been doing ever since, right? And the picture that you get there is really interesting. It's of gardening. We call, the word is cultivate. That's where we get culture. We cultivate things. We grow things, man, out of the dirt. I just met a farmer, Adam. Welcome to Grace Life, man. He's a farmer. We grow things. We create things. We cultivate things. Some, some things that are awesome, time savers, they, they encourage and cultivate human flourishing and for creation on this planet to thrive and to be healthy and to be better. And that's what it means to be an image-bearing keeper of creation like God. You know, we make things like hospitals, Soybeans, cotton, uh, good medicine, right? I mean, I know we don't make cotton, but we grow it. You know, we tend it, we keep it, we cultivate it. Go with me here, all right? We make some pretty cool things. We sent man to the moon in the, in the 60s and just repeated that a few weeks ago, right? We make rockets, we make airplanes, automobiles, all kinds of cool things to help creation flourish and thrive. And that's a privilege. 
We're farmers. We grow stuff. We make art. We, make, we build businesses and companies. Listen, we, we make families. We make cities and neighborhoods and community. We write stories. We paint pictures. We write books. We film TV. I mean, all of that is part of image bearing. We are showing what God is like. He's creative. He's intelligent. He's wise. He's compassionate. He's caring. He pays attention. All of those things show what God is like. And in that sense, it is a sacred calling. It's a divine task. We are invited by God to participate with him in ruling over creation. And that's incredible because in a, in a sense, in a sense, chief, God made us deputies, man. He deputized us. That's what it actually meant when you're reading ancient literature, elite kings, you know what they would do? They would make a statue of themselves, same word in, in Hebrew that's used in Genesis. They would make an image of themselves and they would put it along the boundaries of their kingdom. To show everybody, hey, this is an image of the one who rules here. Take note, obey him, honor him, fear him, remember him, respect him. That's what God did. He put images of himself everywhere, human beings, us. And he said, this is who rules here. Take note, fear me, obey me, respect me. So that's a privilege. We've been deputized. We're like little kings, little case K. We're almost, and I'm not using this in, in the wrong sense of the word, but it's almost as if we're godlike. We have authority. God gave us authority. He entrusted it to us. And he put man and woman in this garden with their badges, with their little crowns. And he said, work and keep the garden. Show the world what I'm like. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, because not only is it a privilege to bear God's image, it's also a responsibility. You know, in chapter one, he says, your image bearers exercise dominion over the whole earth. You're in charge here over the fish, over the birds, over the creeping things. The whole planet respected us, right? We named animals. That's part of, you know, exercising authority is to give a name to something. And then things went south really, really quickly, right? What happened? Well, in chapter 2, God fills out that responsibility a little bit with these two words. He put man and woman in the garden, and he said, work and keep the garden. And there's that new word, keep. You know what that word means? It means to watch, to observe, to protect, and to guard. So not only is it a privilege to bear God's image, now it's a responsibility. God says, hey, you've got work to do, and you're supposed to watch over all of creation because that's what I'm like. God is a protector. He's a guardian. You know, you maybe heard the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. That was us, or if you're in the Lord of the Rings, the steward of Gondor, okay? We're all stewards. We all have responsibility. There's this mandate, keep creation, watch over it. You know, the minor prophets love that word in Hebrew for keep, Isaiah especially. He would talk about the watchman. That's the guard. That's the keeper. He was looking out and watching over all of the creation. That was his responsibility. So I told you before when we were cultivating things, man, we made some incredible innovative stuff, but also some, some terrible things like we've made uh, crystal meth. That's not so good. That's not image bearing well, is it? We've made concentration camps. That's not good. Torture chambers, toxic waste stuff. I mean, I could go on and on, and then there's these systems that we built that are broken too, that have prejudice, and that are partial, and that have racism, 
That's not good image bearing. That's not telling the truth about what God is really like. So when God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, rule over creation and keep it, they had a choice. They could rule on God's terms or they could rule on their own, on their own terms. And when they stood in front of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they broke bad, didn't they? They went rogue. They went off script. They said, you know what? I'm going to show the world that God can't be trusted. I'm going to believe the serpent's lie of Satan. And that's when everything changed. They brought death. They brought destruction, chaos, corruption, violence. And the slime of Adam and Eve's rebellion covers the whole planet. There's not one square inch of creation that you can't go and visit and watch long enough, and you're going to see the effects of the fall. That we, we were image keepers and we broke bad. And no longer are we accurately showing the world what God is like. We're telling lies about him in so many different ways, how we treat one another. You know, in Genesis 1, when God said, exercise dominion over all the animals, over the plants, over the birds, over the fish, he never said exercise dominion over other humans, did he? And that's where racism comes in, and sweatshops, and sex trafficking, and concentration camps, and brutality, and injustice. That all comes in through that window. So those are the points that we start with, is that bearing God's image is a privilege, and bearing God's image is a responsibility. We neglected our responsibility, and our privilege, we just trampled on it. And here we are. And it's interesting to me, you heard Genesis 4, you know, the fall of mankind is in chapter 3, and I think fall is a great theological word, even though it's not used there. Because we were up here, right? We were the pinnacle of God's creation, the crown jewel of everything he made. We bore his likeness. We were actually like God. And it says we fell. Oh, we fell so low. Because being little gods wasn't en- Being God-like wasn't enough. We wanted to be God. Having little crowns wasn't enough. We, we, we reached for God's scepter and we usurped his throne. We wanted to be God. And so chapter 4 follows chapter 3, and that's not just a coincidence, it's a cause and effect. Adam and Eve had their first and second child, Cain and Abel, and we also find our first homicide, right? A brother who murders his, his brother over worship. And there's just this real interesting exchange that God has with Cain when he confronts him. He came to Cain and he says, hey, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Same exact word in Hebrew that was used in chapter 2 when God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, work and keep. Work and keep. And Abel said, or Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And what's he doing there? I think Abel knew. I think he's defying God. He's like, look, I'm not responsible for him. God... God essentially says, yes, you are responsible for him. You were responsible for him. What have you done? What have you done? And within two chapters, God has decided to basically destroy the whole earth with a worldwide flood. This is major stuff. And fast forward the Tate, thousands of years, and here we are today. Seems like the whole world is on fire for some of the same reasons that we are not bearing God's image well. We are defining good and evil on our own terms. We're neglecting our responsibility and trampling on our privilege. 
the world has been under poor management and it still is in some cases. That's how we got here. Terrible keepers, right? Not keeping God's creation. We're not showing what he's really like. But we're not left to ourselves, guys. There's good news here, right? The story's not over. Because Jesus came. Now, if you think of Jesus coming on the scene, here, there's a lot of ways you can think of him. Deliverer, Savior, yes. Yes, all of that. And also, Jesus came to do what the first Adam failed to do, and Eve. He came to show us what God is really like. He came to succeed where we failed. In fact, God, Jesus came to do what everyone failed to do. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, and they were a blight to all the nations, right? So Jesus was the true Israel. Jesus was the true Adam. Jesus was the true human being that came to do what we couldn't do and what we wouldn't do. Show the world what God is like. In fact, he said that. He said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and my Father are one. So if you want to know what God is like, you go and sit down and you look at Jesus and you listen to Jesus and you watch Jesus. That's who God is and that's what God is really like. And man, we can receive such instruction if we kind of zoom out for a minute and just consider his ministry. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He's the very essence of God. He's the, he's the radiant glory of God. So when you see Jesus, you see God in all of his glory. So if we really want to know what God is like and how we're supposed to operate and function in a fallen world, man, we look at Jesus and he shows us and he tells us. And I love that about the gospel. The gospel is a message, but that's not all that the gospel accomplishes. The gospel also has implications for how we live our life and function with other people, right? Issues of race and justice, relational conflict and hope and mercy and compassion, all of those things matter. And Jesus showed us that. So if you look at Jesus, you have a picture of what God is like. And I want to just zoom out for a minute. And, and the encouragement and the challenge I want us to, to leave with today is how did Jesus live his life in a way that can teach us how to be better keepers, better image bearers? That's what I want to look at. And here's the first Here's the first uh, point from it, okay? Number one, if you live your life like Jesus, that will automatically, I can 100% guarantee you, it's going to put you out of step with culture. Because Jesus lived truly, we, we throw this word around a lot, counterculturally. You know what that means? It means you are out of step with the fallen culture that we're immersed in. You're out of step if you're living like Jesus. He lived counterculturally. And what does that mean? That means that people couldn't quite, you know, the people that wanted Jesus to be on their side, it's almost like he was so slippery, right? I don't know if you, would, if you think about this, if we could put a modern, a modern spin on Jesus. If Jesus came here today, I think the red states would have accusations against him because he didn't go far enough. And I think the blue states would have accusations against Jesus because he didn't go far enough. And you know what? Things haven't changed because the Sadducees were li the liberals of their day. Did you guys know that? They were the liberal progressive thinkers of their day in Israel. And the Sadducees were the ultra, uh, ult ultimate conservative right-wing think tank of their day, okay? And let me remind you what happened. The conservatives and the liberals, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they got together. Only time in their existence they ever got together to murder Jesus because they both hated him. 
So I want to tell you something. If you don't feel quiet at home over on the right side, or if you don't feel quiet at home over on the left side, maybe you're on to something. Maybe you're on to something. I was reading a pastor the other day, and he said, and you may or may not agree with it. In fact, you may or may not agree with how I'm applying this message. That's okay. But what I want to challenge you to do is find a way to apply what God is telling us to do. We're supposed to bear his image, and we're supposed to keep creation. Surely there's an application for all of us in this room. Even if it's not mine, I want to share some of my personal applications, but surely you would agree that you have one as well. And man, I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, this pastor was saying he takes some comfort in the fact that some of his people uh, don't quite know where he stands politically. Some people say, oh, that's terrible, he's a coward. No, I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe that's a good thing, that they don't know where you stand politically because you're not, you know, you're not leaning over in this direction. You're not leaning over in this direction. Maybe you're confronting the fallen aspects of both sides. That's a good thing. I'm sure there's some things we can affirm on the left, and there's things we need to challenge on the left. There's things we can affirm on the right. There's things we need to challenge on the right. Scott Sauls wrote a book. It's a great book. It's called Jesus Outside the Lines. I don't agree with everything in the book, but it helped me tremendously. He said this in that book. Check this out. If you seek to honor the whole Christ, your liberal friends will think you are too conservative, and your conservative friends will think you are too liberal. Our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether political or otherwise. We should feel, quote, at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. If this is not our experience, then we may very well be rendering to Caesar what belongs to God. And I like that. That challenges me, and that also helps me. Because I think so often what happens in America is people have so identified Christianity with conservative politics that it confuses people. It really does. And so, for example, for a Christian to stand up and talk about race and justice, because that conversation is at the forefront of a lot of uh, more liberal, progressive thinkers, people automatically think that you're in that camp and they want to label you. And you know, guys, we all, we all suffer from that as part of Americans. We love to compartmentalize people. It's easy. Sometimes it's helpful, and it's just our nature. We're waiting. It's like, okay, does he support this political candidate? Yep, got it. He's a Republican, so he's for guns. He's for homeschool. I mean, we, we have this whole list. We like to compartmentalize people. And I love the fact that Jesus liked to fight that. Jesus didn't fit into anybody's compartments. You know, they wanted him to come and free them from the, the bondage of the Romans, and he didn't come to do that. They tried to put a crown on his head, and he ran away. Jesus didn't carry the water for any political party in his day. At the end of the day, they all wanted him dead, <laughs> right? Herod, Pilate, the Romans, the Jews, the Gentiles, the soldiers, they all did. They all conspired against him. Jesus truly lived counterculturally, and that put him in the crosshairs of the whole world. And if we are going to honor Christ and truly keep creation and be accurate image bearers, that's going to put us out of step with the culture we live in. And I know I get it. Sometimes if you're going to talk about things like race or like justice, maybe somebody's going to say, oh, you're a liberal. But you know what, guys? Listen. 
because of the company that Jesus kept, they called him a lot worse than that, didn't they? Didn't they? What they call him? A wine bibber and a glutton. Oh, you're just a drunk. Oh, he's a friend of sinners. You're in good company. If somebody ridicules you because you are moving toward people that are hurting and that need compassion, then let them. That's fine. You're in good company. Jesus got called a lot worse. They even told him that he got his power from Satan. <laughs> what they said. He gets his power from Beelzebub, from the devil. So if you find yourself at odds with both extreme conservatism and extreme liberal camps, you're probably in good company. So just stand with Jesus, and wherever that takes you, be comfortable with that. <laughs> if, people are, if people are confused, that's okay. Let them be confused. Man, as long as you can tether your convictions to God's word, that's the most important thing. Jesus told the truth about God and about people. And that meant that he challenged people to confess their sins, to repent of their sins, and to believe the gospel. And one of the accusations, and this is another point here, one of the accusations that Jesus leveled at the religious leaders was this, blindness. Blindness. So if we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus and what it means to bear God's image and to be the right kind of worker and keeper, it's going to mean this. We have to take his warnings serious. And one of the things that Jesus warned his followers and the religious leaders about is that we all have blind spots. Now, guys, this scares me. This scares me because those people were the religious leaders of Israel and they knew the Bible. And I want to read something that Jesus said to them. Check this out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and forgiveness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing the camel. Now I could ask you, did you hear what Jesus called them? And you would probably say, yes, hypocrites. That's the word that sticks. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite, but that's not all he called them. You know what else he called them? This is the deeper thing to me. He said, you are blind guides. What does it mean to be blind, self-blind, to have a blind spot? It means that there's a pocket, an area in your life that you don't see clearly and you don't know it. Therefore, you can't correct it. That's what's scary, right? Now, we go back to the original point. To be an image bearer is a privilege. It's also a responsibility, and you can't do it by yourself. You need help. You need outside help. If you have a blind spot, how in the world are you going to see that unless somebody helps you? And, and here, friends, is where we struggle as Christians. It takes humility and it takes courage and faith to reach out to somebody whose experience is not ours and say, will you please help me see more clearly my blind spots? I know I have them. I know they're there. I'm not naive enough to believe I've got it all figured out. Would you help me see myself better and see God better and be sharper for Jesus Oh, my word, that takes humility. It's not easy. But it's appropriate. And they were unwilling to do that. They were the worst kind of blind, blind spot victim. They didn't know they had the blind spots, and they weren't willing to get help, and they were leaders. So guess what? If you're following somebody that's blind, you know where you're going? To the ditch, my friend. Into the ditch. It ain't going to end well for you. It's not going to end well for you. Jesus consistently leveled that, accus that accusation. 
And I want to tell you this, you are not going to see your blind spots in an echo chamber. And let me be just really candid and transparent with you, because I've been on a journey myself for many years. I'll share more about that in a little bit, just with blindness in my own heart, culturally, religiously, my upbringing. But for years, I would not read anybody else that would challenge me, theologically or culturally. I had like five or six people that I would read, and I had people that were in my tribe and in my camp, and we all patted each other on the back and fist bumped and high-fived. Said, man, we got it all figured out. And if somebody wrote a book or did a sermon or recorded a video or wrote a blog, we were like, idiots? <laughs> Seriously. Like, what do they know? But you know what? When I started actually reading people that weren't in my tribe and that weren't in my camp and whose experience wasn't my own, God began to do something really wonderful and mysterious. He began to open my eyes to my blind spots. Still is. You know, I've told you the 10-year idiot rule, right? For those of you that are old enough, don't take offense at this if you're not, okay? If you're nine, you'll get there. <laughs> but I'm 45 years old, and I can truthfully tell you that 10 years ago as a 35-year-old, I was an idiot. <laughs> But here's the thing, guys. I didn't know I was an idiot. Now I do. Thank God. Ten years later, I see, I see clearly. I can see clearly now. But I couldn't then. So what does that tell you? Now, listen. When I was 25, I was an idiot too. But I didn't know it until I was 35. When I was 35, 45. Now I'm 45, and man, I can see everything perfectly clear, right? No, 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 no. When I'm 55, come talk to me. Okay? I'm just trying to be real and trying to be humble and honest. See, here's, here's how you take the gospel and apply it to this. It takes courage, and it takes faith, and it takes vulnerability to seek out the blind spots you have. You have them culturally, you have them religiously, you have them personally. All of us do. We have them theologically sometimes, too. It's the, it's the, it's the culture that we grew up in, that we were shaped by, our family, our upbringing, the part of the town we lived in, our best friends. That's culture. And guys, listen, culture... It's like water to a fish. You just assume it. You don't question it. You don't analyze it. I told you before, Sarah and I lived in L.A. in California for four and a half years. I went to seminary there. One day, we were flying home for Christmas. We went up into the airplane, 30,000 feet. We're flying over. I look out the window. I said, oh, my gosh, what's that? And she said, honey, that's smog. And I said, smog, that's where we live. She said, that's right. For four and a half years, we've been breathing that stuff. I'm like, but you don't see it when you're down there. She said, that's right. It takes you to get up and out to look back and say, uh, that's disgusting. We were breathing that? That's culture. That's the air you breathe. That's the water that you swim in, and you don't know it. None of us do. It takes outside perspectives, somebody whose experience is unlike ours. It takes God's word. It takes God's spirit. It takes outside help. And then you say, man, that was toxic, and I never knew it. Why not? Because we were all just breathing it together, man. High-fiving, fist-bumping, reading our own people, never challenging ourselves, never reading outside of our own tribe. Now, look, guys, I'm not telling you to go read heresy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we have things to learn from other people who are different from us. We do. Thank you, both of you. <laughs> Jesus invites us to consider our beliefs, our culture, and how they're related to each other, how we're shaped and we're formed. I mean, we all have a narrative, and that narrative was handed to you, and it's reinforced right now. You know, there's narratives out there right now. I'm not going to meddle with what news channel you watch or don't watch. I'm just telling you guys that somebody's always weaving a narrative 
that they're going to be happy to give to you. And you're going to have to ask God to help you and think deeply and counterculturally about what the truth is. And it's hard. It's a challenge right now. I want to share some personal and painful examples from, uh, from my own life. I have been numb to the evils of prejudice and racism. It's been an uphill climb for me. If this is offensive to anybody, I understand. I, I ask for your forgiveness. I'm just a, we're all products in some ways uh, of our upbringing. And I had, I had amazing parents, and they're going to listen to this. Mom, Dad, I love you. Still do. Amazing parents, believers, raised me in the Lord. And at the same time, I grew up in the deep south, in the Bible Belt, the heart of the Bible Belt, the very buckle in northeast Arkansas. You know, I tell people I never even saw a black person until, you know, much later in my childhood. And people kind of chuckle and say, oh, bless your heart. You grew up in a little town with one stoplight and a McDonald's. No, uh, I grew up in a 25,000 member town that had like a Walmart and a Chili's and <laughs> um, went to a big high school. But not one black family lived in that city at all. None. In fact, no minorities. No minorities lived in there. So I grew up, uh, and, and I'm not apologizing for that. I, I didn't have anything to do with where I grew up. But the culture there shaped me. There's a history there. And I can remember growing up and hearing this phrase over and over. You know, I'm not racist, but. And whatever followed that but was, was never good. It was never good. I grew up in a culture that it was the air that I breathed. There was distrust. There was distrust with people of color and, and minorities. And it's been an uphill climb for me. I've had to ask God to help me. You know, the, the first interaction I can remember having with black people was on a football field, which is not the best introduction because it's fiercely competitive. You know, they're your opponent. So just imagine that now, okay? I'm, this is your pastor. I grew up in a predominantly white high school, a white town, and the first interaction I had with black people was on a field, and I wanted to conquer them, right? And they wanted to conquer me. They were our opponents. We wanted to crush them, and football is violent and fierce, right? And then on a track, uh, on the field, a track meet, after that, I wanted to outrun them. So it was like I viewed them as an opponent, almost as a threat. And so that, that has shaped me in deep and profound ways that I've, I've had to come and reckon with. Maybe, maybe you have a similar experience, or maybe you don't. I think it's awesome to, ha to have somebody say, you know, I don't struggle with racism. I th praise God for that, man. That's, that's from the Lord. Because prejudice is so a part of our fallenness. It, it naturally happens. And at the same time, I would say this. I want... Not only to not be a racist, I want to feel the same way that God feels about racism because it is an affront to the dignity and the worth and the value of all image-bearing creatures. Just like abortion is, just like murder is, even according to the Apostle James, cursing another human being is defacing that image of God in them. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, how many, how many implications does that have on our lives for how we treat another human being? Profound. So that's the way that I grew up. And I mentioned this earlier, we need, we need each other's help to be good keepers of creation. And one of the ways that I came to see my own prejudices and my own biases 
was here in Florida. In fact, I'll be really honest with you. It's been you. You have helped me. Our community group discussions have helped me. The way that you guys have embraced what we believe about this church, this community, this is a safe place to be, right? This is a safe place to rethink your life at a much deeper level. And we have three things that we apply here. Uh, gospel, safety, and time. And that brings change. That, that brings transformation. Some of our community group discussions have been super helpful. Some of the personal relationships that I have with you, some of the discipling that takes place here. Recently, me and another elder were able to sit down with some, some black friends of ours and just hear their experience. How are they processing all of that? That was super helpful and encouraging and humbling to me. But I want it to keep happening because I grow every time it does. Several other people have reached out to me and said, can we just please sit down with you and share how we're processing all of this? And sometimes maybe it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, it feels a little odd, but I always leave feeling stronger unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ and greater empathy and compassion for what they're going through. I'll tell you another thing that helped me is when Chief Jason Umberger came and became the police chief of Deland. He invited me and several other key leaders in the city, business owners, clergy, both black and white, to be a part of something uh, called the uh, uh, Police Advisory Council, where we sit down and we talk about issues with policing and with the community, with the way that the community views police officers. And oh my word, police uh, chief, that was so eye-opening to me. And then a few months later, uh, we were invited to sit in on some... Uh, implicit bias training that every police officer goes through when they're hired there. And I think that's amazing. I think that's a great way to combat what we're seeing in our culture. That helped me. That was eye-opening to me. Another thing that helped me, now again, the application is I needed outside help. Ted Small used to, to attend our church, and he leads a uh, color line discussion in Deland. Used to used to be every other Saturday. And I would go to those and I would listen. I would listen to people share their experience about poverty, about prejudice, about race, about human relations. And it was eye-opening. I was helped by it, tremendously helped by it. I was humbled by it. And I think that's important. You won't overcome your blind spots without help. Now, that's the way that, that I have been trying to apply this. Surely there's a way. Maybe you agree. Maybe you disagree. For some of you, maybe you don't want me to say anything about this. Maybe some of you want me to say much more, but I would say at least something we can all agree on is that God calls all of us to be image bearers and to be keepers of creation and to tell the truth about who he is and what he's like. And the best possible way to figure that out is to look at Jesus. And one of the final points I want to make is that Jesus showed compassion toward hurting people. He identified with them. He sat with them. He moved toward them. Dane Ortland wrote a book that I've just really been enjoying this summer, and he says this. Check this out. When Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all around him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. His most natural instinct. What is God really like? I mean, does this not blow your mind? What's God like? Here's a person who's suffering. Whether it's their own fault or the fault of somebody else, whether they're a victim or a causer. And what does Jesus do? His natural instinct is to move in, to have compassion, to show empathy. And he doesn't hold his nose. And he doesn't go, he doesn't wag his finger. 
He moves toward them. He identifies with suffering. All through his ministry, Jesus connected with outsiders, those that were oppressed, those that were marginalized, those that were victims of an abusive, broken system and religion. Jesus reached out to them and he showed compassion. He was moved with compassion. One of my seminary professors gave me the best definition of compassion I've ever had. You ready? Here it is. Compassion is this. Your pain in my heart. Your pain felt in my heart. That's what Jesus showed the world that God is like. He felt people's pain. Listen, even, even when Jesus knew the story, he listened. Even when he had the answers, he asked. When Jesus showed up at the tomb of Lazarus, one of his best friends, this John eleven thirty five 35 is one of the deepest, most powerful, and mysterious, and hope-giving verses in the whole Bible. Because you know what it says, guys? It says two words. Kids, you know what it says? Jesus wept. First verse I ever memorized, because it was the only one I could. Jesus wept. Now, here's what blows me away about that. Jesus wept when he was about to undo the very thing that made everybody sad. You know that, right? Jesus was about to crash that funeral, man. He was about to raise Lazarus right out of the ground, but still he wept. And even the words in Greek that are used there are powerful, moving. It says Jesus was moved deeply in his spirit. He groaned. He, it's, he was angry and he was sad. It's like this conflation of words that only the Greek language can do. Jesus was troubled deeply and moved by what he saw. Why? Because he had compassion. Because that's what God's like. God's not indifferent. He's not apathetic. And he's not dismissive. God is drawn to need. He's drawn to hurt. He's drawn to grief and pain and trouble. That's what God's like. And Jesus proved that. And I want to be like that. I don't ever want to be dismissive of somebody's pain that they're feeling. Even if, listen, even if that's not my experience. And I don't fully understand it. I want to. To be an image bearer, to be Christ-like. And by the way, guys, the Bible says we are being conformed into the image of Christ from one level of glory to the next. If, I, if God wants me, my life, to take the posture and the shape of Jesus, I want that. I don't have it the way that I want to. I want to be driven and moved toward people that are hurting. Here's another way to say it. Bear one another's what? Burdens. There are a lot of troubled, burdened, hurt people right now. Primarily, our black brothers and sisters. They're hurting. They're troubled. And listen, I want to move toward them, being conformed to the image of Christ, being an accurate, image-bearing human being. I want to move toward them, and I want to, to grieve with them. That doesn't have to mean I agree with every belief they have. It means I'm bearing their burden. I want to, I want to read something to you. Uh, if you're looking, I know the people, um, if you're experiencing some of what I am, I'm getting all these articles thrown at me, and I'm not even on social media. It's just like email. People know I've been thinking about this, and so I, I've come across a bunch of articles. Some of them are just garbage, man, just be honest. I, I read about two or three paragraphs, and I'm like, nope. And others, even though I didn't fully agree with everything, they were very helpful and challenged me. And one of them is written by a man named Shylin. Am I saying that name right? Who knows who Shylin is? All right, man, this is awesome. He is a Christian hip-hop artist who's black. And this guy's a theologian, man. I mean, his songs are deep. You, you can go and Google later. Um, now, nah, he was in hip-hop before he was a Christian, too. So, you know, just be careful, the lyrics and all that. 
But God got a hold of him, changed his heart. He's been using hip-hop genre of music as a carrier for the gospel, and it's awesome, man. He's got deep, theological, rich meanings. And he wrote an article recently for the Gospel Coalition, which is a great website that's challenged me in a good way to keep the first thing first, the gospel. And the, the title of the article is George Floyd and Me. And Shailen is, is showing, you know, people have been asking me, how am I doing? What am I feeling? And it's just been too hard. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly dive into that conversation. It was too painful for me. But he said, eventually, a white sister in Christ wrote me and my wife, and he married a white girl. Shailen did. And he said, so she, she asked us, how are y'all processing that? I know you have kids. And this is what he said. I just want you to listen to this. I want to I close out with this, okay? This is what he said. Here's a portion. He said, sister, I am heartbroken and devastated. I feel gutted. I haven't been able to focus on much at all since I saw the horrific video of George Floyd's murder. The image of that officer with hand in pocket as he calmly and callously squeezed the life out of that man while he begged for his life is an image that will haunt me until the day I die. Now just full stop right there for a minute. Did you guys hear the words that he used? Heartbroken, devastated, gutted, confused, and haunted. I just want to ask you a question. Is that brother in Christ bearing a burden? Is he carrying a burden? Is he saddened? Is he, is he grieved? This is a brother, man, who's like gospel center. I love his music. He doesn't have an agenda that I can tell. And somebody asked him, how are you doing? And his answer is, I'm burdened. I'm deeply troubled and burdened, and I appreciate your, hair, your, your prayers and your help. So I want to I just ask you a question right now. How would you help Shylin bear his burdens if he were your buddy? How might you bear his burden along with him? And I know you're thinking, well, well Pastor, I can't. He's a soul. I know that. I, I know I don't have a personal relationship with him. I don't know him. But the reason that I chose to, to quote from that article is because every single black brother or sister in Christ that I've talked to over the last two weeks shares something similar to that. People that I do know, that I do have a relationship with, that I can be their burden bearer. So the question is, how might you and I bear their burden and show the world, show them what, what God is like, how he cares, show compassion to them? Again, that takes courage and that takes vulnerability. And it's interesting to me that we're talking about keeping. The Bible says you and I are kept. Did you know that? The Bible says we're kept by God's power. God keeps us so that we can move toward hurting people that need help. It's almost like we're reaching down to help them, but we're, we got our carabiner hook on, right? I don't know. What, what do you call those things? You're not going to fall. You're secure. God's got you. He's got you. He's keeping you so that you can go and help others, so that you can be a burden bearer, an image bearer, a creation keeper. So I'm just going to read a little bit more of this article, okay? Because this helped me so much. This was so helpful to me. Shailen continued to tell her, this has been my experience. And I want to quote some of this. He said, this is about being told to leave the sneaker store as a 12-year-old because I was taking too long to decide which sneakers I wanted to buy with my birthday money. And the white saleswoman assumed I was in the store to steal something. Okay, I've never had that experience in my life, ever. 
he has. And that's a burden. That's a very heavy burden to bear. It's about being handcuffed and thrown in the back of a police car while walking down the street during college and then waiting for a white couple to come identify whether or not I was the one who'd committed a crime against them, knowing that if they said I was the one, I would be immediately taken to jail, no questions asked. I've never had that experience. Never. It's about walking down the street as a young man and beginning to notice that white people, women especially, would cross to the other side of the street to avoid walking past me, and me beginning to preemptively cross to the other side myself to save them the trouble of being afraid and to save me the humiliation of that silent transaction. I've never had that experience. Just a couple more here, okay? It's about taking a road trip with my sons to visit Blair's family in Michigan, and my greatest fear being getting pulled over for no reason other than driving while black, told to get out of the car, cuffed, and sat down on the side of the road, utterly emasculated and humiliated with my young boys looking out the window, terrified, which is exactly what happened to a good friend of mine when he took his family on a road trip. There's a lot of other stuff. This is the last one I'll read. It's about borrowing a baby swing from a white friend in our mostly white suburb of D.C. and her telling me, sure, you can borrow it. I have to step out, but I'll leave it on the porch. I'll leave it on the front porch for you. Just go up and grab it. And then feeling heart palpitations as my car approached her home, debating whether or not to get the swing and being terrified as I ran up the steps that someone would think I was stealing it and call the cops on me. So he ends by saying, so whenever somebody asks me how I'm doing with everything going on, this is some of what I bring to the table. And it's a big part of the picture of who Shylin is, but it's not the whole picture. And this is why I love this article. This is not an article about white guilt or white privilege. He doesn't use those words that he knows are going to be misunderstood and, are, and can be provocative. And by the way, just as an aside... You know, the Bible calls us to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And I do not think it takes very much effort at all to say something provocatively, whether you're on social media or you're just in a conversation with friends. And I think part of being discerning and showing love is to avoid things that are just going to shut the conversation down. We can do that, can't we? God's given us intelligence. Don't we all know that there are words you can use that aren't going to go anywhere? It's going gonna, it's gonna to end the conversation. It's not going to deepen it or further it. And I appreciate that about his article. He doesn't use words like that. And that's what made me pay more attention to it. But he says, that's who Shylin is, but it's not the whole picture. And he ends just on a message of hope. He says, look, do things need to happen? Sure they do. Am I exhausted? Am I sad? Sure I am, but I'm not hopeless. My hope is not in the government. My hope is not in reform. My hope is not in new legislation or new policies as much as those things are needed. He said, my hope is in the Lord, and his compassions are new every morning, and his mercies are new every day, and he fails not, and I am loved, and my hope is in the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that can change a prejudiced, racist heart, guys. It's the only thing. You know, it took a law to abolish slavery, right? But no law is going to abolish racism. You guys know that, don't you? You can't, the only thing that can drive hate and prejudice out of a human heart it's the gospel. It's the love of God. The love of God changes us. And listen, Jesus 
was an image bearer, but that's not the only thing he bore. He didn't just bear the image of God. You know what else he bore? The Bible says he bore our sin. He became a curse for us. You know, whenever Cain murdered his brother Abel, and God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What do you think his blood was crying for? Abel's blood, what was it crying for? Just a guess. Justice. Justice. And you know what? He didn't get justice. Cain walked. Justice would have to wait thousands of years, and it wouldn't rise up from the ground. Justice had to come down from heaven. Jesus Christ came, and he loved justice, and he did righteousness, and he loved mercy, and he bore your sin and my sin on the tree, our guilt. And maybe part of that, maybe is, is racial beliefs, racist beliefs. Jesus bore the penalty from that sin. And he invites us to live like him, to think like he thought, to live like he lived, and to let the gospel penetrate down into those blind spots and change us and correct us and to, to shape us into loving people and leverage our life for the gospel. Amen? Guys, you've been really patient. I know this was a longer message, but I really wanted to, to help you think about these things and challenge you, but at the same time, hopefully encourage you. Thank you for your patience and for your encouragement. Let's, I want to just stop here and pray. And as the worship team comes, this, is a, this would be a great Sunday, man, to really just deeply ponder what we've heard as the song of reflection plays. And we'll have our prayer team back here. If there is anything on your heart you want to pray about, if you have been offended at this message and you want to talk to me, guys, I'm here. I'm an open book. Come talk to me. We can talk about maybe what your application is. I've, I've shared some of my application from this. But I just think God wanted us to talk about this today and think more deeply about these things and pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray, pray for our black brothers and sisters and, and pray for our police officers, many of them who aren't racist, man, and are finding it almost impossible to do their job right now. I think Satan is at work here, guys, but God wants to be at work too. So let's pray for God to heal. And, and our true hope is that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to completely restore this planet and every fallen relationship and wrong and make everything right again. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to just think deeply about these things and biblically about these things. Help us to love the things that you love, to hate the things that you hate, to be humble and ask you to show us our blind spots, to ask for outside help, to push deeper into community with people who are different from us and who have a different experience and upbringing to bear the burdens of those that are troubled and in pain and agony and to repent of any sins, Lord, that you're going to show us. We ask you to convict us. Lord, that's a beautiful thing. It's not condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But your Holy Spirit convicts us so that we can be changed by the power of the gospel. Help us to do that now and today. Thank you for this church that you have created and given birth to, Lord. These are all blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. Unite our hearts, Lord. Thank you for the diversity we see at this church, not necessarily racially, even though we have different colored skin, Lord. Heaven's going to be like a bag of Skittles one day. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But Lord, we had different upbringings here and different cultural shapings here, and I'm thankful for that. May we all learn from each other and be helped and humbled. Be with us now as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our prayer team is in the back. If you want to come and pray, 
ask for help, get counsel. Nothing's off the table. You can do that now. And then I think Megan or somebody's going to share uh, some announcements and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Kyle. All right, just um, just a couple of announcements for you. Um, you can stay connected with us via social media, Facebook, Instagram, also our website, um, gracelifeflorida.com. Um, all of uh, any updates um, are there. If you like to review any of the announcements that had come out about just our COVID response, that's on um, our website as well. Um, Per usual, if you're not on the email list and you'd like to be, you can email me to get on that contact at gracelifeflorida.com. And then just to let you know, um, for our June newsletter, um, just some communication had gone out about uh, community groups. We take um, a little break in the summer. Um, however, we still uh, encourage, uh, you know, community and hanging out and just developing those relationships and growing with each other. Um, if you 
have not been part of a community group yet and you're just coming into this new um, and you would like to know where the community groups usually meet in the fall, um, you can also email me if you'd like to get connected with one of those leaders. Maybe you'd like to um, hang out with a certain community group over the summer um, so that you don't get to miss out on any of that uh, growth and community and um, just let me know. Uh, again, my email is uh, contact at gracelifeflorida.com and I'd love to get you some um, more information on that. Um, if you'd like to stand, we'll say our charge together. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent. Sorrow. 